Well, I would invite you to turn with me this morning in your copy of God's Word to Luke chapter 2. And once you get there, or if you're already there, uh, you can you can turn over, if you would like, to Ephesians chapter 2 as well. As we're going to be piggybacking from Luke onto Ephesians, uh, as there is a, a, a an important exposition, an important passage about the peace that Christ provides in Ephesians chapter 2. And it will help us in our study of Luke chapter 2 this morning. Luke chapter 2 is um, a, a part, we'll look at this morning, a part of the, the Christmas story or the birth narrative of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so um, it should probably, will probably be very familiar to all of you, but... Uh, I think it's good for us to consider it and to read it. So we're actually going to begin in Luke chapter 2, verse 1, and read all the way down through verse 14. And we're going to focus primarily on the end of this passage and then it together with Ephesians chapter 2 this morning. Um, If if you've not been with us, just to catch you up a bit, as I I referenced a moment ago at the beginning of the service, um, in this Christmas season over the last few weeks, we've been considering something of the Christ of Christmas and what it is that he came to do. And and not exhaustively, because we certainly do not have uh, time in these few weeks to deal with all of what Christ came to do. And so we've selected a few things, and we began by considering going all the way back to the very beginning in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and particularly 3, where after God creates all things, and then the crown of that creation is man, then he places man in the garden, and then he gives him his law, and he commands that he not eat of the tree, and then they eat, and God promises death, and death comes. And so there is the the, the judgment there, uh, there, there is the cursing there. But in the midst of the cursing, what we saw is that in Genesis 3.15, from the very beginning, according to God's eternal plans and redemptive purposes, God promised a Messiah was coming. A Redeemer was coming. God promised in the very beginning that Christmas would come. And so the first thing that we learned about Christ is that he came to fulfill the promises of God. And we've seen that again and again and again, because then the next week we considered how God in Christ came to be our shepherd or to shepherd us. But that shepherding was according to the promises of God. For so many of the Old Testament prophecies, like when you go back to Micah, it talks about how he will come and shepherd his people. Right, And so much of in the Old Testament where God talks about, I will be their God and they will be my people and they will be the sheep of my pasture. So there is this familiarity, this nearness between God and his people, this drawing near like a shepherd to his sheep. And Christ says in the New Testament, my sheep know me and they know my voice and they listen to me and they follow me and they come to me. So there is this reality that Christ came at Christmas to shepherd us. He is the good shepherd. He is, in fact, the door to the sheep, the gate over which any wolf or adversary must crawl, if you were with us when we saw that. So according to God's promises, Christ came, and part of those promises is he came to shepherd. He also came to give light. He came to give true light. You know, just, just like he is the true vine or the true bread in the New Testament, Christ says, as we saw last week, I am the true light that has come. And, and what we saw is that in the person of the little baby in the manger, 
that, that in the face of Jesus Christ, the God-man, we were given and are given an opportunity to see the light of God's glory in a way that has never been seen or experienced before. So that the glory of God shone brighter by the light of Jesus than any burning bush or pillar had ever shown before. And that was what we saw last time. So he came to fulfill God's promise. All of them, both prophetically and for our blessing and for our good, for our redemption and reconciliation according to the eternal plans for redemption. But according to those promises, he came to shepherd and to give us light. And, and then finally this morning we're going to consider then that he came to bring peace. Maybe a better way to put that is he came to be our peace. Is the language of the New Testament. So he came to be our peace. Let's turn then to Luke chapter 2. And we're going to read verses 1 through 14 together. Before we read it let's ask God to open our eyes that we would see. God in heaven this is your word. And like you from you it is righteous and perfect. And good and holy. And so, God, we're sinners. Unable to come and understand. Unworthy to even open and learn. And so, God, we pray that you would illuminate us. That you would shine the light of your glory into our hearts. And that you would open our minds and our eyes. Give us ears to hear. Or that you would till the soil of our hearts. That we might be ready to receive your word. God, that it would be planted deep within us, that it would save us. So God, speak to us now from your word and fill us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Luke chapter 2 then, it says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, just side note, keep in mind, again, according to the promises of God, the Redeemer would come from Bethlehem, Micah chapter 5. You know, from, from Bethlehem. And where do they go to be registered? It's not, coincid- it's not coincidence. It's God's providence. So they are led to be registered in Bethlehem so that the child there would be born. Then in verse 6, And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling clothes and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. The angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Glory to God in the highest. Why? As they sang, because now that Christ has come on earth, peace among those with whom God is well pleased. Just a side note. 
For the first time, I think, in my life, I was reading some sermons that uh, were preached by some men that I respect greatly, and they were making some side comments about what this would have sounded like. And I have to confess to you that I don't know that, I would, that I've ever considered that before. I think about the angels that appeared to the shepherds and what a magnificent sight that must have been as the glory of the Lord shone around them and as they declared the glad tidings and the good news to these shepherds. But I think I've missed to some degree that it is a multitude of heavenly hosts that breaks out in heavenly song praising God and singing glory to God in the highest. This is the song that we sang a moment ago comes from this passage. It is built around this passage, the Gloria. Hark the herald angels sing. I don't know that I've ever thought about listening. Listen up to the herald angels, the multitude of the heavenly hosts that gathered across the skies before the shepherds in the fields that night to sing to the glory of God Almighty, glory to God in the highest. Because now Christ has come and on earth peace among men with whom God is pleased. I, I cannot imagine what this heavenly choir would have sounded like. And I look forward to one day having the opportunity to hear. But on to our passage and what it means for us and to us that Christ has come to give peace. The first thing that we have to consider is a bit technical and it's about the translation. Because as I read it and as you read it with me, uh, it may have been a bit different, particularly when we got to the song that the heavenly hosts were singing. This verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace. And yours may say goodwill toward men, a more generalized. That's the way the King James Version and the New King James Version would have translated. But what I want us to see is that the peace that Christ came to bring is a personal peace, right? So the, the first thing that there is a personal peace. Even the very structure of the passage, notice that the angels did not appear in the skies and get the attention of humanity, did they? They came to specific shepherds in a specific place and had a personal encounter with them that they might know that Christ has come and where he is and how to find him. So I think the very structure points to the personal nature of this encounter. But we know from Scripture that the peace he brings is not the sentimental panacea of world peace that we often think about when we talk about peace. We live in a world that people you know, are crazy about peace. And, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way. I mean, I think we should seek peace. peace. I think it's biblical to seek peace with all men in that sort of generalized way. But, you know, you see these bumper stickers with coexist written on it and all the, each letter is, you know, designed in the style of a different religion. You know, you've got the Muslim moon there and the cross and the Jewish star and the peace sign of, I don't know if that's a religion of the hippies or whatever, and, and, and li- I mean, I'm not saying that we shouldn't coexist, but what does that even mean? I, I mean, I confess you, I have no idea what that sticker means. It's so frustrating to me. Don't we coexist? We all live on the same planet. I, I mean, I have no, do they mean we need to live in harmony and not hate one another? I mean, I, I'm for that. We should not hate one another. But do they mean that there should be no distinction? Well, I'm certainly, I'm certainly not for that. But we, we live in a world that is, that, that, that has so little understanding of, 
of what peace actually is, and particularly when it comes to Christ, what type of peace it is that he brings, and they do not understand that it's a personal peace. It's not, it's not peace the way that we typically think about it. Typically, we think of peace in terms of, you know, the, the ceasefire or the, 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 the abating of some sort of military or political upheaval where then we are extended to experience some, uh, some season of peacefulness in our life. Or maybe it's the interpersonal type peace that we think about, where maybe there is someone with whom we have some hostility in the interpersonal relationship that we have, and maybe there are times when that hostility burns hotter, and then there are times when that hostility is a bit dimmed, and it seems to be a more peaceful time, and it seems to be a more peaceful experience, or perhaps it's the internal peace that we think about. I think that's the third kind of way that we normally think about it. When maybe we are really upset and uh, in, in upheaval over some circumstance in our life or at work or in our family or at home, and maybe we feel like we can't share that with anyone, but there's this internal turmoil where we just are not at peace. But friends, what I would, I would contend for you is that all of those are peacefulness. Those are periods of the experience passively of a better situation or circumstance where things are more peaceful than maybe they once were or maybe they could be. But it's, all, it's always determined by this sort of outside of us circumstance. That's not the type of peace that Christ is talking about here. And as I said, it's a, we have to deal a bit with translation. I think that it's best, and, and I'm not going to go deep into it. This, it's not appropriate, I don't think, for a Sunday morning. It has to do with the case of the language in the Greek here, okay? But, but there has been significant scholarship done in recent years, so much so that if you have a King James or a New King James version, you'll have the old translation. But the, like the New American Standard, the English Standard Version, and many of the more literal and accurate uh, translations of scripture, modern translations, they all translate it the way that our ESV reads, like the one that I'm reading this morning. And that is that there is now peace on earth among those with whom God is pleased, with a specific group of people. And friends, this seems not only to be more faithfully interpreted by the text, it seems to fit the general context and truth of scripture. Let me give you a, let me give you a few examples. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 34, Christ is speaking to his disciples. And what does he say? Do not think that I came to bring peace on earth. I mean, is he just confused? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. And you say, well, here it is. It's talking about glory to God in the highest because now there's peace on earth. Well, if you're careful to understand, it becomes a bit clearer in order to be, in order to be, uh, faithful and, and to not be confused we had to understand what Christ is talking about in Matthew chapter 10 when he's talking to his disciples what follows after verse 34 is a discussion with his disciples about how faith in Christ and when someone is united with Christ that it separates them from the rest of the world and that it causes enmity the enmity that God promised would be, as we saw back in Genesis chapter 3, between the seed of the woman from which the promised Messiah, Redeemer, would come, and the seed of the world, the seed of the serpent. 
These two lineages and the enmity between them. And he's talking about that I have come to divide in the most general sense. I didn't come to just bring everybody together at peace with one another. In fact, if you come to me and express faith in me and are united with me, you will be separated. You will be distinct. And and friends, isn't that, think about the system. The system, the ceremonial system that God instituted for his people. It was a system of segregation that made God's people different from everybody else in the world. It set them apart and distinguished them in lots of different areas in terms of righteousness and purity and ritual. It distinguished them in practice from all of the other peoples of the world. It was a distinguishing reality. And then that is ultimately found and fulfilled in Christ. And he says, I did not come to bring generalized peace or a panacea of world peace. In fact, I came and brought a sword. That is a sort of division between those that love me and follow me and heed my commandments and those that do not. And so in that context, if you go back to Matthew 10 there, what you read is, is that faith in Christ, Christ himself, he divides families and parents from their children and husbands from their wives. This division. So see, it's, it's not a matter of generalized peace. If you go to John in chapter 16 and verse 33, he's talking again to his disciples. And Jesus says, these things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. Do you, do you see how specific it is? So now he's narrowed it down and he's meeting with his disciples and he tells them specifically, in me you will have peace. So it's not, it's not this generalized world, world peace for everybody that the angels are thanking God for and declaring uh, the glory of God because of this generalized peace. That's not it. In me, you might have peace, he says. But then how does he follow that up? In the world, you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. So in the world, there's going to be turmoil and upheaval and a lack of peace. But for those who are found in me, they will have peace. We're going to talk about what that peace is in a moment. In John chapter 14, back a little bit from where we were just a moment ago, before he tells them what he did in chapter 16, he says to his disciples, peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your heart be troubled and neither let it be afraid. Why? Because I have given you my peace. So the the peace that's being spoken of back in Luke chapter 2 is not a generalized peace related to our circumstance. It is not essentially something that we experience as our circumstances around us change. It's not a passive experience, something that changes in an instant or that may never be realized at all because there may never and probably will never be peace on earth in that sense. But the peace that is spoken of in Luke chapter 2 and the peace that Christ gives is a personal peace that is pronounced upon us or declared to us. Now that's very different. Rather than simply something that's just the result of circumstance, 
God comes and declares unto us, you are now at peace. It is pronounced upon you. You are now at peace. It's more than physical and temporal well-being or happiness. It is a declaration of reconciliation with God. It is a pronunciation of being given an, an alien righteousness where God says you are now righteous because of what I've done for you. And through the work and the person of Jesus, you now have this righteousness that brings you near to me. And so you have now been made at peace with me. You are no longer under judgment. You are no longer condemned. You are no longer under the law, but there is an abiding and a definite and a eternal peace that cannot be taken and cannot be shaken and is not related to or relative to your circumstance. It's not an experience that is determined by the circumstances around us. It's a reality that is determined by the grace given to us. Do you see the difference? We are completely passive, but it's a completely different thing. Let's turn together then to Ephesians chapter 2. So in Luke chapter 2, when he, he says, notice it, and on earth peace, who, who, with who? Peace among those with whom God is pleased. That is, those who have been made righteous through Christ. Those whom the Father is giving to him. Those that he came to rescue and to redeem with those Men and women with those children of God, they are at peace and there is no circumstantial upheaval or turmoil or political war. There is no military battle. There is nothing that can take that peace away, that can shake it. And so the angels declare glory to God in the highest. Because now on earth, among these that are united with Christ, there is peace. Ephesians chapter 2. This is a helpful passage. We'll just look at, uh, just on account of time, we're just going to look at verses 14 and following. But let me, let me give you a little bit of a running start. In, in chapter 2 of Ephesians, Paul has been arguing essentially up through verse 11 about who we were. So if you want to know something about who we were before we came to know Christ and were united with Christ, go to Ephesians chapter 2. Notice in verse 1 there, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins depraved. Dead. You were a dead man walking. Could not help your situation. Could not change the estate of your soul. You were dead and under condemnation on account of your sins. So he's talking about who we were. And then fast forward to verse 13. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near. So he's talking about who we were, and he's moving to who we are. And who we are is those that have now been brought near to God, who once were far, by the blood of Christ, insofar as we are, as it says there, in Christ Jesus. Now, let's look at verse 14. Why? For he himself is our peace. You see... The person and work of Jesus provides this abiding, definite, eternal peace for his people. 
It is peace with God. That the creator of the universe, the, the, the righteous and holy God of all gods, is no longer angry with you and has washed you and accepted you and counts you as his child and bestows upon you the blessings, the familial inheritance that is promised to Christ. And we are gathered together with him, brought near to the dad and showered with the blessings of the son. We've been made at peace because he himself, Christ, is our peace who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. You see there, he, he, we have been brought near to God because Christ has, been, has become our peace. And it's a personal peace. This is not a peace that is for every body. This is a peace that is granted and is alive in those that look by faith to Christ and that are united with him by the power of the spirit of God. Secondly, it is a practiced peace. It's a practiced peace. And what I mean by that is typically when we think about peace, peace is something that we experience, whether it's the the political peace, you know, of the circumstance of our country or a time of peace. It's something that we experience and that we enjoy. Uh, if, if it's the interpersonal peace between us and someone else, that's a very difficult time and a very difficult situation. And it causes us lots of anxiety. And when that hostility is diminished a bit or goes away for a time, then we experience and enjoy that time of peacefulness. Likewise, in our own hearts, when we are full of um, uneasiness and confusion and turmoil, when that is diminished, our anxieties are alleviated and we have a time of peacefulness. But by and large, the peace that we think about is something that we purely enjoy. And the, the peace that, that I'm arguing that Christ brings to his people, this reconciliation with God, this bringing near of those that do not deserve to be there, that certainly is something that we enjoy. But friends, it is also something, unlike worldly peace, that we are given to express. Let me put it to you like this. I was reading a sermon that uh, Dr. Ligon Duncan wrote on had, had delivered on this passage from Ephesians 2. And he said it this way, in reconciling us to God, Jesus has reconciled all believers to one another. In reconciling us to God, Christ has brought all of us together. And then he uses here in Ephesians 2 the illustration. What does he say? Uh, he brings the two together so that there's no longer two men, but he makes peace between the two men uh, so that they are now one body that is being reconciled to God and he's killing the hostility between them. And he uses the language in this passage of the wall that divides them. And I think Paul is intentionally using language that they would have understood. The greatest expression of this bitterness between 
between sinners, between men, that, that they would have understood these, these Gentile and Jewish Christians with this racial tension and bitterness to one another, both of whom were believing in Christ. When they went to the temple in Jerusalem, you would make your way from the outside in. And ultimately in the center of that temple would have been the Holy of Holies where, where the ark dwelt and where God's presence was uh, dwelling. And, and, and so they, they would, you'd make your way in, but there were all of these different courts. And I know that those of you who have been in the church for any time, you, you know this. But, but, but the astonishing thing was that there was a court of the Gentiles. And, and even those Gentile believers who wanted to come and worship, they would get to this court of the Gentiles and between that court and any of the inner courts from that point forward into the place of God's glory and his presence and of worship, there was a giant wall, a huge concrete wall. And on this wall, there would have been posted signs that would have read something like this, foreigners may go no farther. And if any foreigner is caught going farther into the courts of the temple, they can hold themselves responsible for the death they will experience. Stay here and stay out or die. Now that's the, that's the, that's the climate that Paul is writing into when he is writing in Ephesians chapter 2 to these Jewish and Gentile Christians. And it is into that context that he says, not only has he himself, Christ, who is our peace, made us near to God, he has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's made us one with God. And friends, no matter how different we are, He's made us one with one another. I don't, I don't know. You can go to Hebrews chapter 10 and you can see that one of the expressions of this peace, this nearness to God that, that is made possible through Christ, that one of the expressions of that is the way we dwell and love one another in the context of the church and of the body. But friends, I don't, I don't know how much you have thought about this or how much this is making sense to you, but what I'm, what I'm trying to tell you is this is that because we have been made at peace with God, we are the same. The New Testament, there's neither slave nor free. There's Jew nor Greek. There's barbarian nor Scythian. There's one body. Christ has brought us together and, and put us at peace with one another. So that you older and I'm going to be careful, folks, that don't like the, the way the younger folks dress and the music that they listen to and the, you know, the, the, all of those things that divide us and, and, and the color of one's skin and the socioeconomic status, that, that all of those dividing walls have been obliterated. Whether we want them to be or not, it's irrelevant. Because if I am one with Christ, and if you are one with Christ, then we are one with one another. We are one body with Christ. We are heirs together. And so this is a peace that even if we don't want to, we are called and required to express. 
What's that mean? To forgive your brothers and sisters in the church. To long to be a part. I mean, that's all you have to do is look around this morning. And I, and I know that we're missing a lot of people because it's the holidays and people are traveling. And I'm not, listen, I'm not heaping coals of guilt upon them. That, that's not my style. You understand that. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But friends, all you have to do is look around at church services on any Sunday morning or particularly any Sunday night. And, and you can see very easily how precious the body is to most Christians. What, what place does this body have for you? Do you realize that you are one with these people? Are you full of anticipation on Saturday night with the thought that you are fixing to be able to come together with your brothers and sisters and with the body with which you are one and be brought near together to God? And he will feed your souls and sustain you. And what place does that have in your life? What place does that have in our lives? I don't know. Certainly not one that it ought to have. And friends, we are so quick to get our feathers ruffled or bees in our bonnets or upset about whatever it is. And I'm not telling you that those things are not legitimate. Your brothers and sisters are good. They're sinners. They're going to offend you. They're going to hurt you. Your pastor's going to let you down. But we are called to... Be at peace with one another because we've all been made at peace with God through Christ. And insofar as you are united with him, you're united with me and we are in this together. And friends, who am I to hold you accountable and to not be at peace with you and to take you to task according to the law? When Christ has so far from done that with me. It's a personal peace. It's a peace that is abiding and eternal and definite. It's a peace that is for those united with Christ. But insofar as it's for us united with Christ, it is for us with each other. There is no longer two men. There is no longer a dividing wall of hostility between the Jews and the Greeks. That wall has come tumbling down with the person and work of Jesus, Paul says in Ephesians. So it's a practiced peace or a peace that we are called to practice. But then thirdly and finally, very quickly, it's a perfect peace. And just like we saw that Jesus is the perfect shepherd, and just like we saw that Jesus at Christmas, he came to be the true light or the perfect light that shines. Friends, the peace that is given at Christmas, though it may not be this generalized, you know, panacea of world peace in all of our circumstances where everything's going to be fine. That's simply not the testimony of scripture. That's not even what's meant there in Luke chapter two. It's not what the angels and the hosts of heaven were saying. It is nonetheless a perfect peace, the perfect peace. And let me show you that that's alluded to here in Ephesians chapter two. Um, I would encourage you to go read Hebrews chapter 10 in your own time, because it fleshes this out more completely and more fully where it speaks about Christ uh, fulfilling the ceremonial law. But, but let's look at what he says. Not only does he say that in his flesh he uh, has broken down the dividing wall of hostility, but look at verse 15. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. That is the Old Testament ceremonial law. That law that we talked about a moment ago, that system that actually separated people, you know, segregated because it brought... It separated the Jews from everyone else in the world because it was by that system that those Jews were brought near to God, right? that their sins were atoned for to some degree, that their, uh, that their need was met because they were 
Christ had not come. The blood of the lamb had not yet been shed. The sacrifice for their sins had not yet been made. But so this system, the ceremonial system that divided them from everyone else, it did so because even though imperfectly, it brought them near to God. And it gave them a particular type of peace. The problem was that it was not an abiding and an eternal and a perfect peace, was it? Because their sins continued. And so there was always need of more bloodshed. There was always need of another priestly prayer and the work of the priest in the tabernacle or in the temple. There was always need of another bull or another goat or another sacrifice to be made. When you go to Hebrews chapter 10, it says, Christ tells us, after Christ came at Christmas, because of the peace that he provided, it was a more perfect peace than could ever have been made by the sacrificial system. That the priest who had to continue to come and offer sacrifices on behalf of himself and of the people, that the animals that had to continue to be slain and the blood that had to continue to be shed because the peace was not completed and the peace was not perfect and final, that in Christ all of that has ceased because the peace he offers is perfect. We have been brought near to God forever. We have been reconciled to God for eternity. We have been redeemed, no longer under judgment, made blessings, made, made, made heirs to the blessings that are promised to Christ for eternity. Hebrews chapter 10, God is not pleased with the sacrifices. He does not desire the sacrifices of bulls and goats, does he? but the sacrifice of the body, of faith in Christ, the, 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 the lamb once for all slain for the salvation of the world. It's a perfect peace. And friends, what that means is this, this personal peace that is for God's people, that is practiced among those people who are united with one another, this perfect peace. And, and, and I know that you know this, but I just want to remind you it's a, it's a peace then that cannot it's a peace then that cannot be moved. And I say that to say that I know that some of you have gotten really bad news this Christmas season. And I know that just as Christ promised his disciples that in the world there will be tribulation. For some of you, today is that tribulation. And, and, your, and your life is in shambles. Or your job is non-existent. Or your health is fading. In the world, you will have tribulation. But I, Christ said, have overcome the world. And, and friends, it's easy to say, I know. But, but the truth of the gospel and of Christmas is this. That if we are united by faith with Christ, trusting in him and believing in him for our righteousness, then no matter what turmoil rages here, we will always be at peace with God. If your health leaves you and you die, you have been helped. Because you now get to go be at peace with God for forever. If your spouse leaves you and your family is in pieces, if your job 
disintegrates and your finances are in pieces and there is turmoil all around. Friends, take heart. You are no longer under condemnation. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus that have been made new. Friends, the God of the universe, the creator of all things, the Lord of glory has brought you near and holds you now in his hand. And to him now you are precious. Because of Christ, we've been made at peace with God, a peace that is everlasting. Let us pray. God, I pray this morning that the, the, the reality of this truth would settle deep into our hearts and our minds. But as the hosts of heaven sang that night, glory to God, because in our hearts now there is peace an ultimate peace, a perfect peace, peace that no earthly sacrifice could ever accomplish, a personal peace that is not for everyone, but it is for me and for those that believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and a peace that is to be expressed one to another. God, I pray that this peace would encourage our hearts this day in whatever trial or tribulation we face, in whatever valley we walk, in whatever darkness we endure, that the peace that you have made possible by Christ would encourage us. That you love us and you hold us and that to you we are now precious. May the, the peace that you offer provide a surpassing joy and satisfaction that is not related to our circumstance, but that is determined by grace. For every person here, I pray that you would work in their heart and that if they don't know you, that, that they might, that you would draw them to yourself, that they would, by faith, believe in Christ, thereby being reconciled to you. God, that you would bring them near and hold them close. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.